This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Sarah Slack. She says science teachers who taught her at Farnsworth Middle School and Gilderland High School shaped her into the explorer and teacher she became. Slack now teaches 8th grade STEM classes at the Montauk School in Brooklyn. She talks to us now about her most recent sojourn to Antarctica, where she worked with professors and graduate students to map the seafloor under the edge of the Thwaites Glacier. Called the Doomsday Glacier, Thwaites, which is about the size of Florida, is melting more than other glaciers because of the warm currents below. She was raised in Gilderland. She's a teacher in Brooklyn, and she's really been, in my opinion, an adventurer around the world. Her mother told me she learned Spanish in Ecuador. She got a grant to study wolves in the American West. And she's just recently returned from a two-month journey to the bottom of the world. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you. I would just like to start by hearing a little bit about how it was you came to apply for this program to be in Antarctica. Uh, I've actually applied for a few grants as a teacher. I think that's one of the great things about our a teacher's job is that you have that time off in the summer to grow in your practice, to gain new experiences that you can then bring back to your classroom. So I think taking advantage of opportunities to get out and explore during the time off that we're granted because of the school schedule really does make you a better better educator. So um, this was a program through an organization called Polar Trek that partners teachers with researchers who do their science in polar areas. So some are in the Arctic, summer in the Antarctic, and I applied through a pretty extensive essay process, um, was selected to interview with two different researchers, one who was doing his work in the Arctic and another who was working in the Antarctic, and I really wanted to go to Antarctica, so I interviewed with that researcher. And why did you really want to go to Antarctica? I think because it's such a little explored place and because the science that's going on there has implications for us here in New York City and in upstate New York. Uh, I wanted to learn more about the ecology of the area, but also about its geology and the effects that a changing climate are having on the ice in Antarctica. So... Congratulations on getting this. I understand it's a highly coveted position and many people applied. Um, Just if you could tell us a little about, kind of walk us through your journey. Um, You know, I've read on your posts about the things you were packing and trying to prepare yourself and finding a place for Mm -hmm. your dogs to go. But what was it like when you actually got there? So we flew into the small town of Punta Arenas, Chile. It's way down at the southern tip of Chile. 
And uh, we were met at the airport by someone from the National Science Foundation to make sure we all made it to our hotels okay. And at that point, we also realized that a lot of the people on the plane were going to end up on the same ship. So there were uh, 26 scientists, researchers um, on on the Nathaniel B. Palmer icebreaker, which is the boat that I was on. We boarded the ship on January 24th, found out where our bedrooms were going to be, who we were going to be sharing our bunk rooms with. We did a safety talk to learn about how uh, we would have to respond if there was ever an emergency on the ship. So a fire drill and then also a abandoned ship drill to learn just where all the different exits were, just kind of like you do in brief form in an airplane or kind of like my students do in the classroom when we practice drills. Um, and then so we spent our first night on the ship on January 24th and we got underway on January 25th. It was a 2,000-mile trip from Punta Arenas, Chile, down to the part of Antarctica that we wanted to get to. And that journey, um, we didn't go directly. We stopped along the way to collect some data and to release some monitoring equipment. But it took us about 11 to 12 days to, to travel that distance of 2,000 miles. And tell us what it was like on this ship. I mean, I know, I think I know that you were uh, formerly uh, on the sloop Clearwater, which I know has extremely tight quarters. Um, but what, yeah. what was it? What was you had a uh, roommate? I mean, how big was your room? And what was it like? Uh, I'd say um, the room was small, and most people arrange their schedules with their roommates so that they work opposite times. Mm-hmm. So I was working from midnight to noon, and my roommate was on duty from noon to midnight. So we each had the room to ourselves because it is tough for two people to be in there. There's a single desk and a single chair. There's uh, two cupboards and two drawers and uh, for us to store our stuff. Each room had its own small bathroom. And then the bunks themselves were, were pretty narrow. Um, I could not sit up in mine. I got the top bunk, which is the less desirable bunk, but I lost the coin toss. Um, and so I'd have to climb a ladder and crawl into my crawl into my bed at night. And then if ever I had to get up during the night, I had to go down a ladder to do that. Um, and it was, the, the seas were pretty rough at first. The journey from Chile down to Antarctica takes you through Drake Passage, which is known as the worst or roughest stretch of water in the world. And it was it was pretty bad. I thought I was a sailor after spending two years on the sloop Clearwater, but it turns out you can't get seasick on a river. And once I was in an actual sea, I did get very seasick. So a lot of drama mean to get me through that. Um, but I was glad when we were out of rough water and, and into the ice, when there's ice in the water, it really minimizes all the waves. And so it was easy being in the icy water. Uh, whenever we were in open water with a lot of wind, I started to get seasick again. Oh, gosh, that must have been terrible to be seasick so much. It, it wasn't my favorite, no. Yeah, it was, wow. it, it was unexpected. I thought I was going to be okay. And I never got to a place where I would wake up in the morning and the boat would be rocking back and forth. And I would think, feeling good, I got this. It was always a, 
oh no, this is going to be rough again. Oh, gosh. Well, so tell us about your work. You said you work from midnight till noon. And what exactly were you doing in those very dark early hours? (laughs) Well, actually, when we started, it was light 24 hours a day. So when I got up at midnight, it was light. And when I went to bed at noon, it was just as light. So um, it was okay. It was tough to get used to that time change, but it wasn't like I was working just through the night. By the time we got back, March 22nd is the equinox, and it's light 12 hours a day everywhere on Earth. So by that point, the daylight sunrise sunset schedule had changed a lot, and it was harder to get up and go to sleep at those times. But by then, my body was used to that schedule. So I worked with... Uh, four grad students and uh, two professors, three professors, who also had been assigned that midnight to noon schedule. What we were doing was monitoring the equipment that was mapping the seafloor under the ship. And we were also pausing, stopping occasionally to collect sediment samples from the seafloor. Some of those were analyzed on board, but most of them were just bagged. Uh, stored, and we're going to go back to the institutions of the different researchers at the end of the trip. So tell us about the importance of this work, why this Thwaites Glacier is being so closely watched by scientists, I think, from around the world. Yeah, it is. Uh, It's sometimes referred to as the Doomsday Glacier or the most dangerous glacier on Earth. And that's because Thwaites is melting unusually rapidly. It's melting more than other glaciers, even in uh, similar parts of Antarctica. One of the reasons for that is because it's melting from below. There's this slightly warmer current of water called the circumpolar deep water that is reaching the underside of Thwaites. And even though it's very cold by our standards, maybe just one degree Celsius, That one degree Celsius is more than enough to melt the ice. So circumpolar deep water is melting Thwaites from underneath. As Thwaites melts, it's uh, causing sea level to rise. If all of Thwaites melted, it's thought that sea level would rise about two feet worldwide. But the other problem with Thwaites is that it is a stopper. It holds back four other glaciers behind it. And if Thwaites melted and allowed those other glaciers to also flow into the ocean as well, that is thought to uh, have the potential to contribute an additional 13 feet of sea level rise beyond the two that Thwaites itself would contribute. So this glacier, uh, Thwaites Glacier, it's not huge by Antarctic standards, but the fact that it holds so much ice in place behind it And it itself is so unstable, makes it the most dangerous glacier in the world. Gosh, and when you said it isn't so large, it's about the size of Florida, I read. So the the glaciers are very, very large, apparently. Yeah, yeah. So not large by Antarctic standards, but yeah, yeah, you know, defining an area that exists as its own as a glacier just looks at the patterns of flow of ice. So ice moves over time. It's not static. Um, and so different glaciers move with, the ice moves with the rest of the glacier towards uh, a, or in a certain direction. So as you were working with these graduate students and professors, you were also p- 
posting about your experiences. And do you have any sense of who was following you? Were your students following you? I know your mother was following you. (laughs) Definitely my mother and other members of my family. But we did have students contributing questions in the comments section. Some of my colleagues shared my uh, posts with students every day. So it was a way for me to communicate with them, even though I wasn't in the classroom with them. Um, And it was great to get their questions, to find out what they were curious about, and to be able to respond to those either with just another comment or with an entire blog post that addressed the things that they were interested in. Um, So it was, uh, I tried to think of the blog as much as possible as a way for me to talk to my students who are back in the classroom for two months without me. Yeah, and then as you were in this entirely contained world, meanwhile, the pandemic was um, happening around the world. How Were you getting news of how things were unfolding at home and around the world as you were there? Yes. We had a, a couple ways to, to find out news, and one was by we, uh, receiving a daily digest from the New York Times, which is sort of a, a condensed version of the Times that came in once a day um, as a PDF that we could all read. And so that had summaries of the, the international stories. Uh, about half of the scientists and crew on board are from the UK, so they were getting reports from uh, home from their families and myself and other scientists from the United States were also getting updates from our families. We had reasonable email access. We were able to send and receive emails that didn't have image files in them, so short emails. And there was also a morale phone, a phone that anybody could use for free. It's a satellite phone, so we were able to talk to our families when we needed to. So it was very strange to be in such a distant, remote place to be hearing about all the troubles that were happening and to not really have any sense of what that meant for day-to-day life. Like I was just, I still, can you go to the grocery store? I didn't know. And that isn't in the New York Times. They're not telling you. They're saying maybe there's a toilet paper shortage, but (laughs) what's it like when you walk down the street now? Are people still out walking their dogs? Do people stop and chat with each other on the sidewalks or so it was it was strange to hear the big stories, but not hear the day-to-day details of people's lives, not be able to experience that ourselves. Oh, isn't that interesting? You got the broad strokes, but not the, the mm-hmm. fine points. So was there a problem in just feeling cut off and isolated just personally, especially if you're feeling seasick so much? Um, I mean, I, I definitely missed my family, and I missed my dogs, and I missed... Um, the fried rice from Pad Th- or from AM Thai, which is my favorite restaurant in Brooklyn. <laughs> uh, so, but it, it, I felt so removed from what was happening. Um, I, it, it's difficult to say how it affected me differently being there. Um, I think when I found out that schools were the New York City public schools were going to be closing down, I didn't know how to reach all my students or uh, how my class was going to work from a distance because it's a real hands-on interactive class. And I but couldn't do anything to, to help with that. I couldn't do any research into what other STEM teachers were doing with online classes or come up with new exercises and activities for kids to do because we had such limited internet access. 
So that was a tough time. I felt like I was just useless for a little while in my role as a teacher because I had lost that contact with my students. And just so our listeners know, STEM, which is what Sarah just referred to in passing, is science, technology, engineering, and math, and she teaches eighth grade, where that's it would be a hands-on approach. Well, on the counterbalance, did you find you find that you found close bonds with the people that you were on this ship with in the the middle of the the ice desert, as it were? Yes, absolutely. So. I think that those bonds would have formed even without the pandemic situation because we were working so closely, living so closely. I shared that 12-hour shift with these other people, and so we ate our meals together and then worked together and then uh, all went back to our rooms to sleep. Um, There was a lounge where we had thousands of movies stored, so uh, there was lots of movie nights and game nights. Um, So it was like almost being back in college again, except the people around you are college students. They're professionals and researchers and have so many, not that we weren't interesting in college, but there were so many interesting things to share. People were all intrigued by the same science and able to have these deep conversations about the ways that Antarctica is changing, the ways that our world is changing as a result. So, I really, I thought I would be overwhelmed by having that many people around me all the time, but I ended up really enjoying um, learning from and working with those people, and I hope I will continue to be in touch with them for, for the rest of my life. Wow, <laughs> that speaks really well for the program. So just yeah. t- tell us a little about you as a person and how you became someone that is able to take on what to most of us seem like almost impossible adventures. I just a little about your growing up in Altamont, right? Yeah. Growing up in Altamont, we moved up to the hill um, when I in 1986. So I started living in Gilderland and then moved up uh, into Altamont and continued to go to the Gilderland public schools. Um, I think my love of science partially comes from my parents both of whom encouraged us to spend a lot of time outside as kids. And then uh, my seventh grade science teacher at Farnsworth Middle School was Jeannie Quattrochi. And she just made me love the topic. She had so much enthusiasm for her work and for teaching and for the subjects she was talking about. Um, I also went to nature's classroom when I was in Ms. Quattrochi's class, which is something that I think a lot of seventh grade students had the opportunity to do uh, at Farnsworth. And what, that what experience is that? really what, what is nature's classroom? Yeah. I remember it as being a week long, but it was probably closer to like three days. Uh, we went to a site in Connecticut, stayed in cabins, took outdoor classes, so we learned about the environment. I remember one in aquatic ecology that I really enjoyed. It was just a chance for kids to really experience learning in a natural environment, and um, I loved it. I don't think they have so that. I think that's. Oh no! I hope that they still do. Oh, okay, oh. I hadn't. I hadn't been aware of it. So um, that really kind of got you interested in science mm-hmm. as a formal study. Yes. Yep. And a number of other great science teachers, Mr. Bender, uh, Chuck Bender at the Gilderland Central High School. I took anatomy and physiology with him, and that was fascinating. And then onward into college, just a lot of really inspirational science teachers, people who loved 
both the material that they were talking about, but also to be a, to be a teacher, to be an educator. So they loved what they were doing as well. Um, when I was in college, I studied in Ecuador. That was part, uh, I went to Kalamazoo College in Michigan, and 98% of students at Kalamazoo College were doing foreign study at the time. And that's why I chose that college, a smaller liberal arts college far from home, wasn't exactly what I thought I wanted, but I loved the foreign study program. I loved the idea that it was part of the curriculum and just naturally something that all students did. That gave me a chance to see another part of the world, to experience education from another perspective. We attended classes at a university in Quito. And then on the weekends, we would travel to different uh, ecological sites and learn about the many different habitats of Ecuador. So there's a real focus on ecology and environmental studies. And um, I think that also was one of the transformative experiences of my life. After college, I went to graduate school and Wait, got a master's we, in I want to just biology. back up and hear about this transformative oh, experience. It yeah. was both because you were in a different culture? Is that what trans helped with the transformation? or I think it was a different culture, but also the chance to study outdoors and all these amazing habitats. So we would go to uh, a rainforest research station, and we actually spent three weeks at a rainforest research station once. And to get there, we had to travel down an oil road through the jungle and an open back truck and then take a canoe, a motorized canoe for three hours down a river and then hike for another hour to get to this research station where we spent three weeks and then we had to turn around and do that whole journey again to get home. Um, we spent uh, two weeks in the Galapagos, which was just truly amazing to see these tortoises. I'd already read On the Origin of the Species by Charles Darwin and had learned about the Galapagos Islands in my evolution class, but to just be there and to see what he saw, these creatures that had no uh, similar well, similar species on the mainland, but no um, other individuals of their species anywhere else on Earth helped to inspire Charles Darwin to develop his theory of evolution by natural selection. So to see the sort of the background, the grounding of all this science that I had been learning in the classroom, but to experience it firsthand made me realize that um, that connection between science and the outdoors, between living in the environment and learning about the environment that has stayed with me ever since. Yeah, that seems to be a cornerstone. You're an adventurer going to these places and yeah. learning things firsthand. It's just remarkable. Well, I interrupted your flow of narrative. So then you went on to graduate school? Oh, sorry. Yeah, graduate school at the University of Minnesota. I have my master's in plant biology, and I got that from studying prairies in Minnesota and uh, prairie restoration work, so regrowing prairies that have been damaged by human activities. Um, and then, you know, a few other jobs along the way, uh, including the Clearwater. I also spent five years working for Mass Audubon, which is a conservation organization in Massachusetts. Okay, I'm, I'm interrupting you again, because I want to hear a little okay. about your time on the Clearwater. I think that's something uh, yeah. our listeners at least are aware of, the, the whole Pete Seeger initiative on the Hudson. But just tell us a mm -hmm. little about that. So for two years, I was the educator on the Clearwater. It was, I would work for a week on the boat and then spend a week working out of the office in Poughkeepsie, New York. It was an amazing group of people, both the permanent crew who would work a th three-month 
season. And also each week, a new group of volunteers would join us on the boat, learn the education program, learn some of the basics of supporting the sailing program. Uh, and as a team of 18 people every week, new members of our team would join us. Um, we would teach these just fantastic classes to groups of up to 50 students who came out for a sale with us. So we would do two sales a day, uh, six days a week, usually aging uh, kids from as young as third grade all the way through college students and then some adult and family programs as well, just to teach people about the ecology of the river, the value of the river to our communities, and um, even things like navigation and water chemistry were part of that program as well. But it was another opportunity to be outside to experience the environment while learning about the environment. And then you went on to Audubon. Tell us what you did there. For Mass Audubon, I was a sanctuary director. So I ran a small nature center in Attleboro, Massachusetts. Um, we, I helped to manage the education program. We acquired a significant piece of property while I was the nature center director there. So we expanded the size of the uh, land we made available to the public in Attleboro. Um, we maintained the trails and the property. It was a pretty neat job. I enjoyed a lot of it, but I realized the parts that I enjoyed the most were the education programs. And that's when I decided to go back to uh, school to become a teacher. And I did that through the New York City Teaching Fellows Program, which takes career changers and um, helps them both helps them earn a master's degree in education while working in the public school system. So I joined in June. I, in September, started teaching in a classroom and continued for the next two years to work on my master's degree while I was already a teacher. You are a very energetic person. So tell us, what, the, <laughs> what does the future hold? Are you now a teacher wow. for life? Or what adventures do you see on the horizon? I, I think a teacher for life. I hope there will be more opportunities for adventure. I had applied for a program this summer that has subsequently been canceled or postponed for a year because they're just not sure how everything will work um, as the pandemic waxes and wanes. So what was um, that, so what I know was that were, program? Uh, that was Earthwatch. They take uh, teachers and for two weeks you work on a research project at different uh, amazing locations around the world. Um, and they haven't quite figured out how everything is going to work, but they don't think they'll be able to do their program this summer. Mm-hmm. I also had not been officially accepted into that program. They just, everyone who applied, they let us know that it's likely that they won't be able to run their program this year. But there are a lot of opportunities out there like that for teachers, for people who want to experience new things during their vacation times, or in the case of the Polar Check program, to actually have to miss work for a little while to take on these new challenges. Well, I think your students are very lucky to have you. We've kind of run through our time quickly, but do you have any closing thoughts for people um, about teaching or science or anything you'd like to share? I, I would just say that I think it's important that teachers recognize the role that they have as role models. I mean, I'm still talking about Ms. Quattrochi and Mr. Bender uh, 
years after I had those classes. I'm not going to say exactly how many, but it was a long time ago that I had them for seventh grade and for 10th grade. So the way that we can end up motivating a student to learn or changing the way a student considers their own possibilities, I think those things are so important. And I know that people who are teachers understand that. I hope everyone else understands that about us, that our job is not just what we talk about in the classroom, but who we are as people and our enthusiasm for the subject that we are sharing with our students. Well, thank you, Sarah.